everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, hey, just a little preamble before we kick into the message. Uh, I was supposed to preach this message last week, and I got sick. It's been a while. Uh, In fact, I read a lot of articles that now that most of us aren't wearing masks, those of us who are more prone to catch whatever's nearby are catching it. And I'm not, I hate this about myself, but I tend to be prone to catch whatever's around. And uh, we just had some heavy allergies a couple of weeks ago, and my allergies turned into a chest infection, and there it is. But I bring that up to say that on Saturday morning, when it started to become clear to me that I would not be able to reliably speak without coughing, uh, I reached out to Avery Becklenburg who is a resident at Discovery, right. And um, I would say my job security is in trouble because Avery did such a phenomenal job, but my job security is already in trouble, so that's fine. I, I just want to say, uh, for those of you who did not join us last week, Avery is a resident at our church. She's an incredible gift to our church, as are all our residents. We have these amazing residents. But she took a public speaking class, and she had a natural gift for it, and so we reached out and said, Avery, would you speak? I'll just say as somebody who has been a preacher in some form for 25 years, that wasn't just a phenomenal message for somebody who's never preached before. That was just a phenomenal message and one that we all needed to hear. And I was really grateful to be at home on a couch being able to go to church. That was that was a great gift that COVID has given us. And I know that COVID has rocked us and it has taken a lot of things away. But I also just want to point out some of the things that it's given us and the opportunity for us to worship whether you're here in Colorado with us or wherever you're tuning in from is, is also a gift. So thanks to Avery, I normally like to give people way more notice than a day, but it turns out she doesn't need it. So next time she preaches, I'm going to like give her an hour, see what happens, just really put her under pressure. But I was just very grateful for the way she stepped in and the way God really spoke through her to all of us. So today we kick off our series, uh, The Villains of the Bible. Um, Typically, if you're new among us, we typically in the summer grab some chunk of the Bible and just camp in it. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun, particularly with the spate of superhero movies that we have lately, just to focus on the villains in the Bible? Because all through Scripture, God's people have to contend with evil. Evil people, evil forces, evil spiritual beings, evil situations, and also struggle. And I think that's the same with us today. Every one of us, in many ways, to be human is to contend. There's not a single one of us that just sails through life. There's two kinds of people in the world, people who are facing hardship and people who are going to face hardship. I don't mean to be a bummer today. I'm not looking to bring everyone down. Maybe you're happy today and you came in happy. Uh, it's just my goal that no one leaves here happy after the other. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's just that it's a reality. You can take it to the bank. To be human is to contend, to struggle. And we struggle with all kinds of forces. So I thought it would be very helpful to go through the Bible and each week we'll look at a different villain. And we'll kind of, it, it is, it's like a Bible narrative. We'll tell you the story around the villain, who are the major players. And of course, ultimately, is to show you What is God doing in the midst of that situation? Because one of my favorite things about the Bible is God works in so many different ways, including invisible ways. Uh, One of the villains, I think it's actually on the docket for next week, I'll be talking about a villain named Haman, one of my all-time favorite villains in the Bible. 
And I like that villain because it's in the book of Esther, an Old Testament story. If you're looking for a, uh, something to read, today I'll be throwing out a lot of different things of the Bible you can be reading this week, but Esther's one of them. Esther almost didn't make it in the Bible because God is never mentioned. And the, the editors of the Bible are like, is that okay? Can we put a book in the Bible where God's not even mentioned? That seems like it's against the rules. I mean, they made the Bible rules, but they're still feeling uncomfortable about it. And they said, oh yeah, we have to put Esther in because God is so obviously at work even though he's never named. And one of the reasons I'm excited about next week is that's the culture we live in. God is so obviously at work in our lives, but it's not always easy to see God. God is covert, not always, uh, I get that right? Not always overt. That's the book of Esther. So villains in the Bible, we'll go through, we're going to get through this through about the end of August. We'll be with villains for quite a while. And, uh, you know, many of you know that Discovery is a church for people who are followers of Christ and people who are also not followers of Christ. And one of the most common objections I hear to becoming a Christian is people say Christianity or belief in God is a fantasy. They just say the whole thing's made up. And I'll say to them, why do you think it's made up? And they say, because it's built around the story of every fantasy, the struggle of good and evil. The way you know Christianity is a, a humanly constructed fantasy is what, what these skeptics are saying. And listen, I have heard this so many times from skeptics. When Lisa and I do our seeker groups, this is a common one that comes up where people say, come on now, you can't honestly believe, people will say, that there's this serpent who tempted Adam and Eve. You can't honestly believe that like Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And we're like, oh yeah, we believe all of that. <laughs> Yeah, but, but here's what's crazier than that is not believing it. Because what people say is they say, look, you know, we grew up with Disney movies. We went to Star Wars. Now we have the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The human is obsessed with good versus evil. All of our great stories, not just our modern movies, but the original Greek tragedies, they're all about humans contending with evil. But what the Christian argues, what I argue, is it's actually the other way around. Our fascination with good and evil isn't evidence that we've made up God. It's evidence that there really is a battle of good versus evil, and the human being is fascinated with it, and we're trying to make sense of it. And so we create all these stories, not because we've created a story about God, but because we were born into this reality. I actually think that one of the evidences that there is a good God is our obsession with stories about good and evil. And so listen, if you're skeptical of that, the question for you, the burden of proof is actually on you as the skeptic. How do you explain evil? Where do you think evil comes from? Or maybe more pointedly, who do you think evil comes from? Because you can dismiss and flick away the, the biblical account for evil, but, but not so fast. How do you account for it? I, I've noticed as I have been e trying to explain the Christian faith for about 25 years now, most of my adult life, as I'm in conversation with people, I'm noticing a trend in our culture that the burden of proof is becoming more on me who has constructed a worldview. And what people do when they're skeptical is they don't have a worldview, they just want to knock yours away. They just want to say, well, that's dumb. That, that doesn't make sense. And then when I say, well, what do you think? They then back away. They say, oh, well, no one can know. 
And I'm one step from calling people a coward at this point. I've gotten about fed up because I, I don't mean to rant here behind a pulpit, but I've worked very hard to really put together a robust philosophy of the way the world is. And many of you who know me, uh, I'm, I'm just one person, but I'm a pastor who proclaims the faith that I have struggled to believe for a lot, a lot of my life. That has a lot of the course of my own journey has been one of profound doubt. And so digging deeper and deeper and deeper into what's really true, what can we stand on, what can we know for sure? And so when people come and they say, well, the idea that there's like a Satan, right? And I'll say, okay, that's fine. You can poo-poo Satan. What's your solution? How do you explain why people are the way they are? A lot of other people will say, and, and again, when Lisa and I have our seeker nights, this is another common question, and it's a good question. People say, how can God allow evil? How can God allow evil? How can that be if God is so good? How can He allow so much evil? But again, not so fast. The deeper question is, how can we allow evil? How is it that we as human beings allow evil, so much evil? Let, let's say there is no God. Let's just say that when you die, you're dead. That's it. There's no supreme being. There's no author of love. There's no reason why you and I can use complex language and build complex buildings, even though other animals can't do that. All of these things that Christians say are the evidence for God. Let's say none of that's true. Take away God's involvement. You still have massive evil. The authors of Scripture do not claim that God allows evil. They also don't claim that God creates evil. Uh, I'm just going to put a little phrase on the screen here. I, I'm sorry, I don't know. I, I, this is not original with me, and I, I couldn't source where I found this, but I just want you to know I did not come up with this. God is never the author of evil. He is the editor. Now, what in the world does that mean? When you look in the Bible, I, I understand why human beings want to know how can God allow so much evil. It's a very human question. It's a good question, but it's not a question that authors of Scripture understand. They don't talk in language of God allowing evil. The authors of Scripture use two phrases. God restrains evil. God restrains it. In other words, the authors of Scripture make a claim. It may sound crazy to you, but authors of Scripture make a claim. It, without God, there's more evil. We actually live in a more ordered world because of a good God than we would without God's restraint. Now, you might be saying, oh, come on, that's a cop-out. I don't think so. Even our secular movie people make ap apocalyptic movies that are much worse than the times we're living in now. Have you noticed that? Mad Max, The Book of Eli, those kinds of movies, these kinds of end times, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, every man for himself kind of movies, those movies show a, a darker, more evil world than the world we live in today. The authors of the Scripture don't really talk uh, through the lens of God allowing evil. They talk about God restraining evil, le actually letting us have a more civilized world than we would in our own devices. And secondly, and this is the editor comment, God redeems evil. There is nothing that a human being can do, there's no amount of trouble you can get in that God cannot redeem that God cannot make something of. He cannot transform it, uh, make it beautiful. And so this is really the vision of Scripture. So, good and evil. This is our summer series. Can't wait. Sounds exciting. I can tell by the looks on your faces, those of you in the room, those of you who are still tuning in. Good for you for sticking with us. Now, as I, as I continue to, to challenge the skeptical point of view, 
Uh, I just want to say to those of you who are skeptics, it's not enough to chip away at someone else's belief. You have to stand on a foundation of your own. You have to figure out what you stand on. Because when trouble comes your way, uh, just chipping away at someone else, deconstructing will not get you through trouble. But a robust worldview. And so the simple questions, if you are currently on a deconstruction journey, if you're currently trying to figure out faith and belief and all of this, you can ask some very simple questions. What's the main problem? What do you think the solution is? What's the problem? What do you think the solution is? In our culture today, uh, the main problem is outside of you. The solution is within you. That's what our culture broadly teaches. The main problem is someone else. The main solution is in you. Look inside to solve the problems. The authors of Scripture, they say exactly the opposite. The main problem is you, <laughs> and the solution is outside of you. The good news of Jesus Christ is you cannot solve your own problems. But Jesus can. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. It's bedrock. That we are the problem, we perpetuate the problem, but that God can actually bring the solution. That's Pastor Matt Smethurst. So, the Bible. It's simply a collection of the stories of the people of God over time, and it's chock full of villains so each week we get up, we'll present a villain, we'll share the story and the context, and then what God did to redeem the situation. And so I'm just going to run for about 10 minutes really quickly, just on some of the types of villains that we find in the Scripture. Because normally when we think villain, we think human. But there's a lot of villains in the Bible that are not humans, including our first one. Sometimes the villain is a snake. Let's begin in the beginning. I understand. A, a lot of you who are not sure about this Jesus thing, you're like, come on, Adam and Eve, like fully formed humans from dirt, and then God breathes in them? Come on. And then, oh, come on, you say, a snake? Really? A, a couple of interesting things. You know, in, in the Christian, Christian tradition, we call this being, this snake, we call it Satan. But um, we, we make the mistake of naming this being. We actually don't necessarily know the name of this being. In the Bible, these words are descriptions, not names. And so Satan, not to get all nerdy on you, but in the original language, it's the Satan. And by the way, if you ever want to sound more sophisticated as a Bible scholar, you just change the pronunciation that's common. So when people say Jehovah, you just go actually Yahweh, and then you look like the smarter guy. I've been doing this for years. And so, you know, what we call Satan in the original language is actually the Satan, which is the tempter or the accuser. Uh, even when you notice Jesus talking about Satan, he actually uses descriptors. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. So what the, what the authors of the Scripture believe and what we believe as a church is that evil is personified. It is ultimately uh, sourced by a being, a, a living being. Um, and so in Genesis 3, it's a living being that is a snake. Now, is this a literal snake or a metaphorical snake? I don't mean to get in trouble with about half of you, but the author of Scripture doesn't really care. Just doesn't care. So if you want to have that debate, it's an interesting debate. It's a fun debate. But fundamentally, it is not what the author of Scripture has in mind. What does the author of Scripture have in mind? The, the author who wrote this, whether it's Moses or whoever wrote Genesis, because we're actually not sure, and people, it's okay to not know. It's okay to say the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and we don't know who wrote Genesis. That's complete. You can be a conservative Christian and get away with that. just want you to know. 
I just want to undo some of the things that we hold tightly on that the authors of Scripture are not holding tightly on. So that's one. And the second one is, is the snake metaphorical or literal? We don't know. Here's what we know. That the first temptation that the tempter offered to humans is you can be like God and we have been getting in trouble with that temptation ever since. That every one of us have to contend, this is the first contention for today, do I want to be like God or do I want to follow God? You can't do both. Do I want to be like God or do I want to follow God? The, the tempter was tempting Adam and Eve. Before the tempter came along, Adam and Eve, the, the author says, they were naked and unashamed. And I know when you're in middle school, you giggle at that, right? But if you just camp on that phrase, naked and unashamed, it really is a stunning comment. Adam and Eve were vulnerable, were fully exposed, were fully human, were fully known and seen by God, and were completely at peace with it. It's remarkable. When you think about it, the idea that God knew everything about Adam and Eve and they felt no compulsion to hide or shapeshift or lie or cover over or deceive. And then they fell into temptation. What was the temptation? You can be like God. In other words, you get, you get to be the judge of what is right and what is wrong. What's fascinating is I've done a lot of study on this concept. That's like I'm fascinated that, that authors and speakers like Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown, who I just think is an amazing, uh, what she's teaching us nowadays is incredible. What I find fascinating is how much of some of that is in the earliest recordings of Scripture as humans are trying to account for their shame. Brene Brown very famously talks about shame and vulnerability. It's right there in Genesis. It's amazing. And as they're contending with it, what happens is human beings, when they try to be like God, they try to be in control. They decide that they get to judge other people. They get to judge what's right and wrong. Uh, human beings feel like they have to now be perfect. Some of you are raging perfectionists. You can blame the Satan for that. Some of you feel like you believe that you always have to be there for people. If somebody's hurting, your job is to drop what you're doing and be there for them. These are the attributes of God, the judge, the one in control, the one who always knows the answer, the one who does it perfectly, the one who's always there for people. When the human being tries to take on the attributes of God, uh, literally all hell breaks loose. All right. Uh, moving on, sometimes the villain is a human being. There's plenty of those in the Bible. I've already mentioned Haman and Esther. Uh, as you read some of your great stories, those of you who grew up in Sunday school, this is where your Sunday school memories really get activated. David and Goliath, some of those old stories of a human contending with a human and God coming through and saving the day. Sometimes the villain is a human, but sometimes the villain is a weather pattern like famine in the book of Ruth. I don't know, we think about that. When we think about villains, we, our, our mind naturally goes to a person. You know, if, if I were to ask you what your villain is today, your mind might actually name a name. You might be like, I wish this person would stop doing this thing. They're a villain. But in the Bible, villainy is much broader, where weather patterns, and in Ruth and Naomi's case, tragedy, where both of their husbands die, and because of the famine, they now have to relocate. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, 
Uh, you can read Esther this week. It'll take you about 20 minutes. It'll be one of the best short stories you've ever read in your life. I, I'll make you that money-back guarantee. Those of you who tithe, 10% rebound on your tithe if you're not happy with the book of Esther. Just a little freebie for you. Uh, and once you're done with Esther, you can read the book of Ruth. One of the greatest short stories ever written in history, the way it's constructed. But it's a famine in Ruth. And so what I want to do is actually just put a dead stop on the sermon and I just want to give us about 30 seconds of silence just in case you came into the room today or those of you watching online, there you are sitting in your chair and you find yourself contending with something that you feel out of control. You feel like the elements are overpowering you and you just need a moment to give those to God. So I'm going to invite you to take everything out of your hands. This is a practice we have on a regular basis here at Discovery. It's a practice of release and trust because humans are trying to control and know. That's because we're trying to be like God. And just an opportunity to release and trust. If God is inviting you to release trust to something you're contending with, you're trying to fight it on your own right now, just 30 seconds of silence for you to talk to God and give it to God. Okay, also just before we jump back into the sermon, we just had a young child left choking and I think it would make me feel better if one of our staff just went and checked on the adult that carried the child out to make sure they're okay, make sure they don't need help. So thanks, Robin. Yeah, and if, if you come back in, just give me a thumbs up and then I'll relax too. That'd be great. I'm sure they're fine, but I would just hate for someone to have to be dealing with that on their own when maybe they could use some help. Okay. Sometimes the villain in the scripture is the people of God. Uh, this is not something that we are comfortable at all with as the people of God. But sometimes you and I as a group, we're good, thanks so much. Sometimes you and I as a group uh, actually are on the wrong side of God. And particularly in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of examples of this. I put Isaiah on the screen. If you want to read a stark account of God contending with God's own people... Isaiah 47. Isaiah 47. Oh my goodness. It, it's a lawsuit genre. Sometimes in the Bible, the authors of Scripture use different genres. So those of you who love like Law and Order, uh, A Few Good Men, those kinds of shows, you'd love Isaiah because oftentimes Isaiah puts the people of God on trial. So the people of God are, are in the defense stand and then God shows up and you're like, well, what role is God going to play? Well, because God's God, God plays the judge and he has the gavel. God also plays the prosecuting attorney, and God plays the witness for the prosecuting attorney. You can see God bouncing around the courtroom. You're like, hey, that's not fair. God's like, I'm God. You can shut up. And so as God's uh, prosecuting, giving account, and then judging, the people of God are just left absolutely flailed. Um, and it's interesting because there's a lot of the Old Testament for a long period of time where it's the people of God that God has to contend with. For God to get God's will done, it's the people that are in the way. And it, it should be a stark reminder for us. I'll, I'll just say this, this church is led by elders and 
This is volunteer men and women uh, that have been selected by this church to give spiritual oversight for the church. Some of you in the room are elder alumni. You've served in the past. And, and I'll just let you know that this is one of the things that haunts the elders is are we, on, are we in the will of God? Are we doing what God wants us to do? Are there things that we are unintentionally or intentionally doing that is blocking the will of God? We do not as a church ever want God to be contending with us so that God's will can be done. And, and the Old Testament got pretty stark um, where sometimes God would actually smote people. That's where the smiting language comes from. Sometimes God would send plagues. Sometimes God would send an enemy army to come in and invade. Anything God could do to get the people of God's attention and the people of God whittled down. And there was this, there was this phrase that would go around Israel in the Old Testament called the remnant. And, and basically the idea was because God had promised that Israel would always be God's people, Israel had this kind of arrogance that no matter how bad it got, they'd be fine. They'd be fine. And so they would say, well, there's, gonna, there's always going to be a remnant. God has promised that there'd be always at least a remnant of us left. And so in the book of Amos, uh, it's an Old Testament prophet. Um, Amos is, is accusing the people of God of being against God. And so he's saying, look, you guys are no good and you're terrible and you're all going to die and it's going to be really bad. And then Israel comes back at Amos and says, well, we'll be fine because God promised there'll be a remnant. And then Amos says, oh, there'll be a remnant, all right. And then Amos says this, and I quote, just the way a shepherd pulls a sheep out of the lion's mouth when there's only two bones and a scrap of an ear left. Yeah, there'll be a remnant. Amos says, you've got to love, this is why people don't read the Old Testament much. There's just a lot, like we end up in the target of it. But I just say this, guys, it's a good thing once in a while just to check and just to have a holy fear and say, Lord, just because I've been following you for a long time does not automatically mean that you and I are good, that you're not contending with me, which brings us to our second last villain. Sometimes it's a man of God. Sometimes it's not just the people of God. Sometimes it's the prophet of God, the representative, the so-called professional. And for this, we've got to look at Jonah. Jonah. By the way, I don't know if you've been reading your news lately, but a couple of months ago, did you see the lobster diver in New England? Some of you, sperm whale or... Um, or um, humpback. We had a big argument about it at the nine o'clock service. Broke out into a riot. It was terrible. I think it was a humpback whale. Some of those of you don't know the story. This dude on the New England coast free dives for lobster. This is what he, this is his job. Just dive down to the bottom, grab a lobster, pull it up. That's what he's done every day for, for a couple of decades. He dives down and a humpback whale swallows him. And he's in pitch darkness holding his breath for a, a couple of minutes. And then the humpback whale spat him out. And he's like, I, I'm just trying to figure out, am I dead? Because he said it was just completely black. Am I dead? No, I'm alive. I'm in a whale. So that brings me to the book of Jonah. Brings me to the book of Jonah. You can Google the story. And, um, you know, Jonah, not unlike Genesis, the author is not that concerned whether this is actually literal or metaphorical. What the author of Jonah is interested in is this is absolutely a mockery and a parody. You, if you're going to read Jonah, you have to read it through a comedy lens, through a parody lens. The man of God thinks he's righteous, but he's not righteous. He's self-righteous. And the pagans, like sailors, ever been to New York City during Sailor Week? Stay away. Sailors are famously pagan, always have been. Sorry, sailors, those of you who served in the Navy, thank you for your service. And also, historically, you've been pagan. 
And yet in Jonah, it's the sailors are more righteous than the so-called righteous man of God. It's the Ninevites who created ways to torture people. I won't tell you some of the torture techniques because it's Sunday morning and you've got lunch coming, but it will turn your stomach. I've Googled it and you can Google it too. The Ninevites were first-class torturers. They knew how to kill somebody slowly so it hurt the most. These Ninevites more righteous than the man of God. Sometimes it's the actual preacher that's in the way. And just to be frank, uh, you may or may not be following the news, but in the last couple of years, there's been a massive reckoning in this country of famous preachers who are being exposed for fraud and hypocrisy uh, and losing their pulpits like crazy. God will do, like truth will prevail and God will reveal. So, I don't ask this as a threat, but do you recall a time where you have ever been on the wrong side of God? I do. I, I, I know times where God has called me to do something and I simply have not wanted to do it. I know when God's called me to be generous and I've finally been generous and I'm like, ah. I know when God has called me to forgive someone and I'm like, nope. And I realized, wait a minute, I did not sign up to follow God in order for God to contend with me. I remember several years ago, we had a guest preacher, Carl Wheeler, and he came and he made this passing comment, and it's always stuck with me. Carl Wheeler, he was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the whole carry the pack the extra mile, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, forgive your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, all that nonsense. And Carl Wheeler got up and he says, the reason their commands is none of us want to do them. I've never forgotten that. I'm like, that is right. That is why Jesus commanded it. Because Jesus knows it's best for our human freedom if we do these things, but we don't want to. Have you ever been in a time in your life where you have knowingly been on the wrong side of God? And much like our elders, what haunts me is being on the wrong side of God and not knowing it being on the wrong side of God and not being aware of it. That's why on a regular basis, we ask God to search us and to know our thoughts and to show us. As we turn to the New Testament, our final villain, we run into all manner of human villains, Herod, the Pharisees, Caiaphas, sometimes even the disciples. Peter, for a short moment there, is a villain where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Pontius Pilate, Caesar, even everyday people like Ananias and Sapphira. But what's interesting in the New Testament is how little attention the authors give to human villains. The primary villains in the New Testament are these dual-linked villains of death and sin. Those are the villains that are contended with in the New Testament. Of course, the Satan is mentioned, and these other humans are mentioned too, but overwhelmingly, it is death that's the enemy and sin is the enemy. And the other interesting thing about the New Testament is that God contends with them so we don't have to. If you are not a follower of Christ, what the Bible teaches is that without Jesus, you have to contend with death on your own and you have to contend with your own sin and shame. And one of the surefire ways that you know that you're contending with your sin and shame is when you're doing what everyone does with sin and shame, which is to hide and to blame someone else. Hide it, diminish it, uh, tuck it away where no one can see it, shape shift, and then blame other people. That's kind of the evidence 
that you are contending with sin and shame. But what the authors of the New Testament teach is that in Christ, you no longer have to contend with sin and shame. Jesus contends with it on the cross. And in Christ, you no longer have to be afraid of death because Jesus' death and resurrection covers your death for you. You will have eternal life with God after you die. So here's what we're going to do is we're actually going to celebrate this through the act of communion. I'm going to invite Daniel and the band to come up and, and prepare to lead us in worship. But uh, when you walked in, you were given uh, what is still a very COVID-friendly but ultimately not highly satisfying communion experience. This is a piece of bread and a cup. It's not ideal, but it's the best thing we have right now, so we use it and we give thanks. And the bread represents the body of Jesus that is broken for you. Now, for many of you, you have been a part of a church for years where this is your regular habit and you know what to do. But for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, what you do is you peel the top off, the top piece, and you hold the bread. And as you're eating this bread today, this is the recognition. The bread is the recognition that Jesus died for your sin and your shame. You do not have to contend with your sin and shame anymore because of Jesus on the cross. And if you believe that, you receive this bread. And then you peel back the second, you see this grape juice, and this juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you and I. And again, we are in the habit of remembering that Jesus shed his blood for our sins. But today we also remember that Jesus rose from the dead to conquer death. The authors of Scripture say the sting of death is taken away by the resurrection of Jesus. And so we drink this as a proclamation of eternal life. Let's do that now. Now, it might be that you have never given your life to Jesus before and you are still counting on yourself to manage your death and your sin and shame. You can become a follower of Christ today. When we're done, Daniel's going to lead us in some worship. And when you're done, you can just come down the front and uh, you can say, I'd like to know more about being a follower of Christ. We would love to talk to you. There'll be a few of us down front. What we're going to do as we close is hear the word of God. So if you're able and you're in the room, let's go ahead and stand as we listen to the words of Paul in Colossians. Paul says, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Let's sing to the goodness of God now.